It's been a challenging time for many in this country, from the scene of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis to the protests, riots, and even looting in New York City, Washington, D.C., and many other cities across this country. We're seeing injustice, yes, also joined by expressions of anger and violence alongside tough questions in our policing practices in America. Coleman Hughes and Ralph Manguel, both fellows at the Manhattan Institute, will join us today for a discussion on cities in crisis. They will address the recent riots across urban America, and particularly in New York City, and their implications for public order, policing, race relations, and even our city's reopening. And now, Coleman and Ralph. Coleman, I wondered if you could uh, kick us off with some opening thoughts, and then we'll go to Ralph. Sure. Thank you, Michael. Um, yeah, I, I am struck by um, by a sense of very deep despair for my country right now. I mean, it feels like the entire nation is on fire, and it, it's a very, very grim time to be an American right now. And I have I have a lot of thoughts about it, but I'll, for, for now I'll... I'll I'll just give you a sense of, of why I feel so pessimistic about this at the moment. Uh, from what I can see, there is a very deeply felt and widespread perception among black Americans and among white liberals that the police are unfair to black people and racist and quicker to use force um, and quicker to pull the trigger. And to me, this is a perception that is only partly true. From what, I, from what I know, the most rigorous studies, such as Roland Fryer's, have found that the police are more likely to use non-lethal force to rough up a suspect if he's black under similar circumstances. That also accords with common sense and life experience. On the other hand, the police are not more likely to shoot and kill a black suspect. It, it actually isn't true. Um, it may have been true in the not too distant past, but in the living memory of the Black Lives Matter movement, which really began in earnest in 2012 and ballooned in 2014, this whole time it has, it has been false that the police are more likely to shoot and kill black black Americans. And it, it's impossible for people to keep this in their mind without feeling as if they're dismissing the entire history of white supremacy going back uh, to Jim Crow and slavery. It's all connected for people and they cannot separate the issues. And there has been a massive and pernicious coverage bias in the media in the past eight years on these issues. There was a man named Tony Timpa, who was a white man in, in Dallas, who was killed exactly the same way George Floyd was killed, with a cop's knee on his back, suffocating, begging for his life. And when that video came out, there were no protests, there were no riots, there were no, uh, it didn't even go viral so far as I was concerned. And so, and, and there are plenty of other videos like this of, of white men in particular being killed in precisely the circumstances that were they black would inspire um, you know, at, at worst, a wave of national unrest, and at, at best, a, a, an outpouring of grief on social media. And so the media, by selectively covering these, has prepared black Americans to feel as if our people are being uniquely hunted. And then we react, as many people would, 
if their people were in fact being uniquely hunted by the cops. And I, I despair because I have no idea how we get out of this situation now. And on the one hand, you know, everyone who lived through the, you know, many people who lived through the late 60s are telling me it was worse then. And I think they're right in many respects. The, the riots were more widespread. I think there, were, there was more damage, at least so far. You know, this episode is not over. Um, you know, it, it was 1967 and it came back in 1968 and, and the Vietnam War and so on and so forth. Um, but at the same time, that was followed by a 20-year period of relative peace. You didn't see so many riots in the 70s and hardly any in the 80s. And what what I worry is that I'm not sure this one is going to be followed by, by a 20-year peace because all of the conditions for, for the rioting are are going to be here in, in you know seemingly perpetually in the near term, which is to say, I don't know how we I don't know how we get rid of the perception or temper the perception that the, the police are deeply unfair to black Americans, given that the media has so much, um, you know, so much of this inertia on this issue and that, that just the habit of not at all caring when a white person gets killed in this way. I don't know how we fix that. So I don't know how we fix the perception. I don't know how we fix, given the reality of American policing, um, I don't know how we get the number of unarmed black people who get killed per year down to zero, which seems to me is, which it seems to me would be required in order to never have these spark events. The reality of American policing is that there, there's a third of a billion people in this country already. So we have way more police civilian interactions than almost any other country in the world we want to compare ourselves to per unit time. We have, we have, uniquely, we have a country with more guns than people, which means cops, when they pull over a suspect, can have a much more rational expectation that the suspect will have a gun. And so an American policeman, even if he is, is well-trained, has more reason to mistake the wallet for a gun than in most other places in the world. And that's not going to change. Uh, everyone is a journalist now. Everyone has a camera in their pocket, which they can turn on within three seconds of wanting to, which, to be clear, I think is a net good for transparency and for preventing police abuse and for holding police accountable, which is a huge problem. But it also means that any event, even a video out of context, can go viral the same day. And so given all of these conditions, I don't see how we go even five years without a wave of rioting like this. And finally, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, very in favor of addressing the, the deep-seated corruption that exists in the police. The police protect their own no matter what, like most institutions do, but we fail to address it. Um, they're often given too much leeway. Uh, sometimes it's police chiefs deciding whether to punish their own people, which, uh, you know, in any, any organization leads to bias. And so I'm for addressing all of these things, but I, I try to imagine in detail what the country looks like when we have addressed all of them. And I wonder if we actually get the number of unarmed black Americans killed by the cops down from what it was last year, which is nine. Nine in a, in a, in a, in a 
in, out of 40 million black people. I wonder if we get that number down from nine to zero, and I don't see it happening. And I despair for the country for that reason. Coleman, that was powerful. Ralph, I wonder how, uh, how you'd like to follow up, what your thoughts are. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there is a real truth to the idea, you know, as staunch a, a protector of free speech uh, that I think we all are. I think there is a, a real truth to the fact that the way that these events have been covered, the tone of the rhetoric in the media is very much feeding uh, the sense of, I think, despair and um, anger that leads tens of thousands of people to take to the streets, uh, you know, several nights in a row in American cities across the country to some express anger peacefully, but many to loot and destroy um, and sort of exert dominance over the public space in a way that I think rightly puts fear in the hearts of a lot of Americans, including myself, um, by illustrating just how, how thin the edge is uh, that society teeters on. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people, because of the sort of comforts of modern times, have been able to sort of take for granted the, sort of the peace that we all enjoy. Um, and, you know, I, I think that has probably contributed to some degree to the looseness of tongue with which a lot of these really important issues are addressed. Um, you know, when, when we talk about the, the sort of disparate coverage of these issues, um, you know, Coleman rightly pointed out the fact that white Americans are very often the victims of exactly the kinds of abuses that we saw on video um, with, with George Floyd. And I think that's a problem. But also, there there is a real problem in how we cover and how our media covers not just white Americans who are victimized by police, but also the one of the biggest threats to black life and limb, which is run-of-the-mill street crime, right? Um, you know, there, there have been some rigorous analyses done to put a number on what the odds are that, that someone will be victimized violently by the police. Um, and, and, and for black men, the odds of dying in police custody are one in 1,000. And, you know, it's, it's obviously not as, uh, the odds are not as, 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 as low as, as winning the lottery, but um, it's certainly not uh, anywhere comparable to the odds of being shot and killed by a street criminal, right? Uh, you know, Americans, for Americans in general, the odds of dying uh, from gun assault are 1 in 298. That's for all Americans in general. And we know, for example, that black men are about six and a half times more likely to be the victims of a homicide than their white counterparts. Right? So if we do that math, we can see that the odds of being killed, uh, you know, in, by, by, by a street criminal are, are orders of magnitude larger than uh, the threat posed by American police. And I think this gets lost in the rhetoric. And so when I look outside and I see the sort of violence that we've all been horrified by, I, I'm not entirely surprised, which is to say that you know, it's almost understandable if you accept that a large portion of our society sincerely believes 
that they are the victims of this kind of uh, of oppression. And um, you know, like Coleman, I, I I'm afraid that I don't have great answers to the question of how we sort of roll that back. You know, I think the greatest hope to pushing back against the kind of domination that this rhetoric has exercised over uh, polite society uh, is to give people the courage uh, to speak out when they don't fit into that that box. And uh, I don't think that people actually have the space to do that. I also don't think that were we to be able to get the number of unarmed black men down to zero, um, that things would change all that much. Um, and I say that because the difference between nine and zero is much smaller than the difference uh, between the hundreds of people that were, you know, the the uh, that, that were the recipients of deadly force exercised by the police even 40 years ago, and the handful of people for whom that's true now. If you look at departments like New York City in 1971, the NYPD killed nearly 100 people. Uh, they they shot and wounded uh, like 220. Last year, they discharged their weapons a total of like 60 times, 70 times. This is not this is not a lack of progress. Um, and if that kind of jump uh, isn't enough to sort of temper the rhetoric, I'm not sure that getting the number of unarmed blacks killed by the police down to zero is going to make much of a difference. Nor do I think it's possible. Um, in part because, as, as Colm pointed out, there are, there, are, there are instances in which police can understandably and justifiably, based on an objective standard, mistake something innocuous for a weapon. That's in part due, I think, to their experiences in the field. Um, it's in part due uh, to the ubiquity of gun ownership in this country. Um, it is also in part due to the fact that police are humans. They are, they are prone to mistakes. They have families that they want to get home to. And one of the reasons I don't think you see um, you know, the sort of racial bias, or at least the case for racial bias and deadly force numbers that you might be able to see in non-deadly force numbers is precisely that in those situations, police are operating pursuant to one thing, and that is their desire to live. Um, and the idea that uh, that all these cases can be chalked up to murder is is not only untrue; it's irresponsible. Um, you know, what, one example of, of how this can play out, I think we saw was was in the Stephon Clark shooting in California. Um, this is almost two years ago now. This was a a, a man who was unarmed. Uh, he had a cell phone that was mistaken for a gun. He was breaking windows and and jumping from backyard to backyard spotted by police. Police chased him through the street into a backyard, and he ran up the driveway, made a left into the yard, and police chased him. And you see in the helicopter video that, that, that covered the shooting that as police make their way up the driveway, as they break the plane at the back of the house, you see that the, second, the first officer stops short, runs back behind the house, and pulls his partner back with him, and then they fire their weapons from cover. It's not something that you would do unless you truly believe that the person in that backyard was armed and dangerous, right? Yet that, that new, there was no patience to explore that evidence. There was no patience to appreciate that nuance. And, 
you know, although the, the, the pitch did not reach the level that, that we've seen today, there were massive protests. in. Ralph, I, I wanted to ask you a question here to also tee up discussion, um, too. And, and, and one point that I want to get to uh, after this question is, what, what are your thoughts on the goals of the riots? Um, we've seen different goals thrown out there. What is the end point? Where does this lead? But, but Ralph, and, and maybe you, Coleman, you know, there's a piece uh, by uh, Radley uh, Balco who compared the different experiences that uh, black and white Americans have when they uh, see these viral videos or when they encounter police that that, and I wonder what your take is on it. If you haven't read it, he, he said, uh, when white people, this is in Washington Post, when white people see video of unjust police abuse of a white person, it may make us angry, sad, or uncomfortable, but most of us don't see ourselves in the position of the person in the video. Um, it, but when black people see the video of an officer kneeling on, say, George Floyd's neck, their reaction is much more likely to be that could have been me or my son or my friend or my brother. And he says, in general, it seems clear that when confronted with a story about one of their own dying at the hands of police, black people tend to internalize while white people tend to compartmentalize. And then he goes on with some implications of that. What's what's your response to this? I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, it, which is to say that I, I think it's true that people do have those sort of disparate reactions um, along racial lines. And I think part of that is because there is a sort of cultural thread that runs through the black community uh, that is one kind of rooted in this idea of solidarity. I think one of the reasons that, you know, maybe a white American uh, sees one of these videos and doesn't see themselves in it is because yeah, at least in the instance where the watcher is someone who's a law-abiding citizen, you know, they, they don't expect that to be a real, uh, a real outcome because they don't expect to have that kind of interaction with police. Whereas I think, again, partly because of, of the sort of rhetorical posture of our modern debate, a lot of black Americans, irrespective of how law-abiding they are, are sort of made to feel like this is, this is an inevitability. But in fact, if you look at the data on police use of force, many of the studies make very clear that, uh, the, 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 for example, the, the rate of violent crime is a much stronger predictor of changes in police use of force um, for a particular neighborhood than racial demographics. And I think, you know, Coleman hit that on the nose when he, you know, when he talked about, you know, the real sense of fear that a police officer walks up. Uh, feels when he walks up to a car during a traffic stop, and I, I do think that it differs between communities, but it's, I don't think it's purely a matter of, of race, and I, I don't really know what we do about the truth to, to Balco's critique, um, other than to say that we keep hammering home the data that show that, in fact, police, by and large, are a group that is characterized much more by professionalism and restraint than by bigotry and violence. Um, but I wonder, I wonder if you have thoughts on this too. Uh, I think his observation is, is more or less correct. I think a lot of black people, they see themselves or their family. Uh, you know, at the same time, I think uh, you, know, you can risk getting reductionist with that because, uh, you know, it, it really just depends on the person. Um, what does a black cop see? You know, over half the NYPD are, are non-white, right? 
does the black cop immediately empathize with the suspect or do they think what was it like apprehending that suspect um, you know a lot of black people have cops in their families um, a lot of white people see it and immediately empathize with the person they have black people in their family or they they actually have the kind of mind that uh, is less sensitive to, to like the skin color difference so they immediately feel like it could have been them too it, it, you, you see all the reactions but I think as a pattern that observation is, is basically correct what do you see as the endpoints, the goals of these protests. I've, I've seen on social media viral posts from the NAACP demanding, among other things, an end to uh, chokeholds and, you know, knees on the neck. I've also seen people talk, raise issues with police unions uh, on defending their own, not being accountable. Um, but, there, but there also doesn't seem to be any sort of, like, direct leadership here on the protests that would say if certain demands are met, then we collectively across the country go back home? I'd like to react to that. I, I think part of the reason you don't see that kind of sort of collective uh, agreement uh, to certain terms is because I think that there is there are differences between and among many of the people that fall under the category of protesters in terms of their goals and, and what they're in this for. But I think we have to be very sort of measured and sober about what we can expect from some of these popular reform proposals. Um, for example, you know, police policies that ban chokeholds don't necessarily prevent those things from being used, nor do they prevent, um, you know, and we saw that with Eric Garner, that the NYPD has had an administrative ban on chokeholds. Um, but what, what those policies can't do is change the underlying law, which is that while it may be caused to fire someone like Daniel Pantaleo for violating that police policy, um, it is still, whether or not that the, the use of that kind of chokehold is criminal is not, doesn't have anything to do with how the police department in question categorizes that. And that's why I think the fact that even though Pantaleo was fired, um, no one really uh, was satisfied with how that case turned out because there wasn't a criminal prosecution. Um, but a lot of other, you know, sort of really popular things, especially with, relate, with relation to police accountability, I think also just have to be looked at soberly. And they don't really strike me as things that are likely to make enough of a difference to tone down the rhetoric. I mean, take qualified immunity, for example, which has been, a, you know, a huge target for a lot of people engaging in this debate. And yeah, I, I think there is a real strong case to be made that doctrinally the idea of qualified immunity is uh, is wrong. It, it, it's you know, and that there's a case to be made that this is just you know a judicial activism in practice, and and that it, it, it's the the idea is detached from the text of the statute, which is you know uh, Section 1983 of Title 42 of the U.S. Code. But if you look at the empirics, qualified immunity is only. Uh, a bar to recovery in about 4% of the cases in which that defense can be raised. Um, yet, again, you have this, this is sort of the running theme here, is that the rhetoric just does not match the reality. People, uh, you know, as we saw in USA Today recently, as we see from uh, the Cato Institute's Clark Neely, people are adamantly jumping on the George Floyd um, incident to make a case that this is now the time to end qualified immunity as if Qualified immunity is a, is a shield to criminal liability, which it is not. 
and as if qualified immunity functions as the kind of uh, shield that, that people make it out to be when in fact it does not. Um, you know, I, I recently wrote a law review piece for the Federal Society that looked at a, a, a database of lawsuits filed against the NYPD. It contained more than 2,000 lawsuits, and, and there were like a couple dozen that had been resolved in favor of the police officers. And you know, it doesn't say which 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 ones of those were were because of qualified immunity. But even if you assume that all those resolved in favor of the police were on qualified immunity grounds, you're still looking at you know a couple percent of of that whole. And uh, you know, so again, I think that even if some of these uh, policy proposals are enacted, I think people are going to be in for a rude awakening. Um, Coleman, I, I I wonder if you'd like to jump in too. Yeah, um, I don't think that the the riots have a goal. I mean, if you if you notice, the the rioting started after charges were brought against the cop that killed George Floyd, not before. Uh, and then they shifted the goalposts and said, you know, some of them said, "What we really want is for you to charge the other three officers too." But do do do, do we actually believe that? No, um, the riots are not a goal oriented movement at all. They're, they're not a terrorist organization that says we're going to use violence if you, if you meet these criteria. It's not the civil rights movement um, that had a clear program. No doubt there are lots of peaceful protesters. A lot of, I've seen videos of them in fact restraining the rioters sometimes. And you're going to find probably a higher proportion of those people having some kind of concrete program. They've read the articles about qualified immunity and they think it's a silver bullet. Um, and I take I take uh, I take Raphael's point that it's it's almost certainly not it doesn't mean we shouldn't get rid of it per se but I think none of these the body cams aren't going to be a silver bullet but I'm, I'm I still support them because I think they increase trust um, you know something like a civilian review board or or a, a review board of of some other kind probably also is not going to be a silver bullet but they all might move the needle somewhat um, but yet the the riots. Um, are an expression of frustration at two things. First, the, the widespread perception that the cops are racist and treat black people unfairly, and the keenly that, a keenly felt perception of that. And two, the the feeling that there has been no progress in recent years through normal democratic means. Um, George Zimmerman killed Trayvon in 2012. And Derek Chauvin killed George George Lloyd in 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 2020. Nobody cares about the data. I care about the data. You do, Raphael, and people at the institute will. But we are extremely weird for that. The typical person does not. I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm very you know I'm worked up. Does not give a shit about the data. Okay, and they're they're watching they're watching 10 second snips snippets on their cell phone. And if they see one in 2012 and one in 2020, it doesn't matter that the number of you know black people killed by the cops has like more than cut in half since then. Even right, like even since we've been counting in 2015, the Washington Post database, the numbers have come down actually pretty remarkably. And nobody even knows that. Nobody cares cares about it. It's not going to be reported on the news for for a myriad of different reasons, having to do with like baseline human psychology, but also with uh, you know the the would be rioters are not a population that is going to be sensitive to any level of progress other than a complete elimination of the issue, and that if if they have if they could be said to have a coherent goal, it would be that it would be zero a zero rate of cops killing black people year after year after year, 
And I, I really do not see how that is possible.